This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 99 of the Stable Scoop Radio Show on the Horse Radio Network, The Unwanted Horse, Part 1. Please support our sponsors as they make this show possible. Our title sponsor is Omega Alpha, and you can find them online at omegaalpha.ca and also Equestrian Collections. Visit them at equestriancollections.com. Welcome to the Stable Scoop, where weekly shows delivered right to you. With Helena and Glenn the Geek, live from the stable, it's every week. They'll bring you the news through hell, hot water, while using their tails as their own fly swatters. So sit on down and laugh till your poop, cause it's time again for Stable School. Stable School. Stable School. This is Glenn the Geek from Lexington, and Kentucky. Oh, you threw in a twister I threw for a me. twister in there. This is Helena B., and you're listening to the Stable Scoop Radio Show on the Horse Radio Network. And Helena is from beautiful Rhode Island this time of year. I throw that in there, too. Helena yeah. lives about a mile from the ocean, and I heard you went down and had a picnic the other day. Yes, we had a picnic for my birthday. We went down and... Uh, had some yummies at the beach, How which cool is really is that? nice. It's awesome. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I know. Who am I? Like I say, I, I have two horses and I live a mile from the ocean. I, I just, life couldn't get any better. And it's about 100 degrees. So it's warm, you know, which is a rare event in New England as well. <laughs> I don't know. Last week here, we've had an official heat wave. It's been yeah. in the 90s and 100. I know my brother called me from Ocala and was laughing. He said, you know, all my brothers live further north than us, and we're at 80 degrees, and you guys are all at 100. I had two friends that came up from, they come up from Florida in the summer to the northeast because, you know, that's how they get away from the heat. And, of course, it's 103 in New York. Yeah. <laughs> were they heading back to Florida where it's only 80? Yeah. <laughs> well, today, Helena, we have a bunch of stuff on the agenda today. It's going to be fun. We have, first of all, we're very excited to announce that we have a new title sponsor on the Stable Scoop Radio Show, and that's Omega Alpha. And we're actually going to be speaking with the founder of Omega Alpha, and that's Dr. Gordon Chang. And we'll be talking a lot more about what Omega Alpha offers and and what they have to really offer you and your horse and your pets. So we are very excited about this relationship. Uh, We believe in what they do. And we, we like the fact that what they do is backed by science. And I know that your husband is involved in the nutrition world and involved, again, in, in things that are backed by science. So yes. uh, we're, we're excited about that. And, and I know you are, you're very excited about it because you have to live with your husband talking about nutrition <laughs> and science every day. Well, you know, anytime we ever get something that's um, on the fringe of, of science, either that, that's new or just somehow on the fringe, I always check in with him. I mean, I've got a science background as well, but um, he's, he's very much entrenched in it and he's all about the numbers. You know, he's all about proving that something works. And I know with alternative um, therapies and pharmaceuticals, it's it, the proof is in the, the pudding. Does it the work? Testing. Yeah, um, yeah. So we always talk to him about it. And, um, you know, I'm excited that, that um, Omega Alpha is on board with us because I think they've got it right. I think they're doing all the right things. 
in terms of providing products for, uh, for, for our horses and ourselves um, that, that actually work. Well, we're going to have a little welcome chat with Dr. Gordon Chang here shortly. And then we also caught up with Kathleen on Kathleen's wild ride across the country. She's now in Idaho, which, which uh, I think Helena forgot where that was from her uh, elementary school days and had to look that up. But uh, she's, she just got through a ride uh, up to like 10,000 feet in the Rockies and to taking a little break now. We managed to catch up with her earlier today. So we'll, we'll catch up with Kathleen, who still sounds like she's in great spirits. She had the giggles today. I think she was drinking. <laughs> I don't know. I think there was something in something that. Something in uh, that coke. Yeah, I think there was something in that canteen. Um, and then a special two-part series we're starting today, and we're going to talk more about this shortly, on the Mustang and the unwanted horse issue that in America. And we've received many emails wanting us to address this issue. And it actually, it was addressed on the Horse Radio Network on the Western Radio Show by Alan and Jimmy Kay, the hosts over there. And we wanted to replay that here on Stable Scoop because Stable Scoop, at this point, Western radio show is fairly new. Stable Scoop has a very large audience. And we wanted, I thought they did a terrific job explaining the Mustang issue and the unwanted horse issue out west and the roundups and all of that. I thought they did a terrific job explaining it uh, with, with the help of a guest, and that was Dr. Don Hoagland. Uh, who wrote the book Nobody's Horses, The Dramatic Rescue of the Wild Herd of White Sands, who was actually in, in charge of that. And I just felt after I listened to this two-part series that I finally understood the issue because I think all of us get bits and pieces. And you and I talked about it too, and we discussed whether we wanted to tackle this, but I don't think we knew enough to even start it. So, That's an important point, yeah. to, or to even develop an opinion. I mean, I've been sort of like, you can't even pick a fight with anybody because I, I couldn't pick a side. I didn't really have all the facts. Right. This is a great way to get those facts. And Agreed. they did a terrific job. Alan and Jimmy Kay, I give them credit, and that's why we're going to replay their actually their interview over, over the next two episodes here today and next week uh, with Dr. Don Hoagland, who I was fascinated by. I was just absolutely fascinated by, and I just felt like I had a better understanding of both sides of the story. So we're going to, he's going to be coming up here. Their, their interview is going to be coming up right after we speak to a, the first couple of our guests. So let's get started with Dr. Gordon Chang of Omega Alpha. Well, hi, Dr. Chang, and welcome to the Stable Scoop Show. Hi. Pleased to, uh, pleased to be here. Well, you know, we want to thank you. Helene and I both want to thank you for becoming the title sponsor of the Stable Scoop Show. We appreciate that, and we're very excited to be working with you here over the next uh, year or so and, and hopefully get the word out about Omega Alpha. Well, the pleasure is all mine and also, all, um, also Omega Alpha's. And, you know, we keep trying to say Alpha Omega, so uh, we're, that's something we're going to have to work on. <laughs> Just because it's, it comes out of your tongue that way, you know? Well, you know, the, the history behind Omega Alpha is just that when we first started, we, we weren't presumptuous enough to say we were the biggest. So hence, you know, you know, with the Greek, the Omega is the last, so we are the smallest, and one day we will be the biggest. So hence the Omega going to the Alpha. From your from your humble beginnings, great things humble shall beginnings, blossom. great things shall happen. That's right. Well, and you as great things have happened. I mean, you started this how long ago? We've been in business now for eighteen years. Initially when we first started, we were doing um, product for human use. And then approximately ten years ago we launched the Equine line. And, it, you know, it took a lot of hard work, a lot of promotion, a lot of time to get us to where we are today with the equine line. Um, to the point now, I, I think we are probably 
we are probably the biggest um, supplier in Canada as far as alternative health products goes, supplements and herbal products for the for the equine market. Wow. Okay. And you you do do you still do the human products as well, right? Yes, we do. We do the human products, and we also have a, a line for small animals, so dogs and cats. All right. So, so we're sort of a, a well-rounded company. All right. So let's we start. Let's start with you. You are, you have your PhD in what? My background is I have a PhD in physiology from the University of Toronto and through the Institute of Biomedical Engineering. And okay. I also did a couple of years postdoctoral work in clinical chemistry at the Toronto General. And when I, gra- when I finished that, I, I opened um, Omega Alpha Pharmaceuticals with the idea of manufacturing OTC pharmaceuticals. So we jumped through a lot of hoops to get a, a license to manufacture pharmaceutical products. But then, you know, um, being you and nobody knowing you from a hole in the ground, we weren't getting too many contracts to do manufacturing. So we basically looked around and said, well, what can I do? Because I still like to eat. Right? <laughs> so we ended up. <laughs> so That's a funny thing around, about humans, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, well, we looked around and, and we realized at that time, about, no, we're looking about 18, 18 years ago. At that time, the, the natural product market was just taking off. But one of the things that we realized was that there was a lot of people doing natural products without any real academic or scientific background. Doing right. It, right. And, and in my mind, you know, we understood the process. We had the academic, I had the academic credentials, and that's how we launched the line with these, with these ideas. And also the fact that we had a pharmaceutical manufacturing site license at that time to, to manufacture um, OTC pharmaceuticals, but we applied the same rules and principles to the manufacture of herbal products. So what that meant was that the general consumer was getting a superior quality product. Ah, okay. Mm. Well, then, right. so, if we, if so we, how it... Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to ask the what, same thing. <laughs> what, yeah. Um, let's going into the equine line here. Um, what prompted you to get into the equine market, and what product did you lead in with? Okay. Well, you know what? There's a fellow called John McLeod, and he walked through my doors one day, and he said to me, Gordon, all the stuff that you sell for humans, human... Um, would these work on on the equine? And I looked at him and I said, well, I don't see why not. The basic physiology of the horse and the human is the same. The basic biochemistry is the same, right? The only thing you have to adjust for is concentration and dosage, right? Because if you have a horse and you want to give him, you've got to give him horse quantity, right? right? right. And one of the major first issues I saw when we were doing their products is that there are a lot of horse products out there, but there was a lot of what I, when I actually looked in to see how much of certain things that was in there, there was barely enough for humans, much less for a horse. So mm. with that principle in mind, we wanted to make sure that whatever we produced, we had horse dosage and horse quantities to make it effective. Right? For us, efficacy was the most important thing in our, in our product line. Efficacy and good scientific knowledge on, on what we're doing. Right? That was important. And, and because, sorry, go well, ahead. Talking about talking about efficacy, um, I have my husband is nutrition research with Tufts University, and one of the things that he often talks to me about is um, the bioavailability of certain products, especially especially alternative health products. Um, mm-hmm. 
do you guys do you test for how bioavailable how much actually is getting into um, the horse to benefit the animal we we don't test specifically for every single ingredient but I'll tell you how what we have done to ensure bioavailability now if you look at our product line we do a lot of herbs okay one of the biggest problem with herb herbal products out there in the market is that everybody was taking herbs grinding it into a fine powder and feeding it to the horse the the the, the, the thinking the thought pattern at that point for some of these um, producers was that well a horse eats grass a horse gets a lot of its um, nutrients and so on from hay so they're herbivores so if we give them the herbs they should be able to get the active ingredients out of the herbs and digest it out well, what a lot of people don't realize is that a horse out in the wild, if you were to feed him, if he's feeding on grass, he'd be chewing grass 20 out of 24 hours, basically, to get enough nutrients to sustain him, right? The, ration, the reason for that is because their, their, their um, digestive tract is not exactly the most efficient in the world, right? So what happens is that if you were to take a herb and put it into a powder form and feed it to the horse, well, the horse still has to digest the actives out. Now, when you digest the actives out that way, they may get 10 or 20% of the active ingredients actually out of the herb. So if you give them 100 grams of material, you're really giving them the equivalent of 10 grams of material that right, you can right. get anything out of, right? Now, right. So, the, so what we did, um, we, we realized that from the get-go. So what we did, we started to do what's called liquid extracts. We take the herb and we, we extracted the active ingredients out of it, and then we added it to, uh, to flavor, we flavored it, sweetened it up, etc., so that the horses will actually like it. Because unlike humans, you can't really tell a horse, you know, you can't bargain with a horse and say, look, <laughs> this is going to be good for you, you better take this, right? <laughs> Although many right? do but, try. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they'll have much success on that one, right? No. But so, so one of the other key things we, we put in our products to say we make sure that it has to taste good to a horse, otherwise they're not going to take it, right? And so with those two principles in mind, what we found is that when we gave the horse the dose, we gave him horse dose to start off with, and secondly, we made sure it tastes good. Most of the horses, that, most of our products that we have out there, people see effects within anywhere within one week to, to two weeks. Sometimes they see even um, faster than that, like within the, um, a couple of hours, some of them see it immediately for certain products, right? Now, so because of that, that in my mind is what um, made us um, very popular, right? Plus the fact that, of course, we, we did do some marketing. You've got to tell the rest of the world who you are and what you have, right? But efficacy, with, without efficacy, all the marketing dollars in the world wouldn't help, right? Because you'll buy, they'll get them to try it once and once only. With efficacy, they'll come back. And that is what we have... Um, found very, very effective. So what makes uh, Omega Alpha different than the, uh, the other products out there? Well, one of the major things is that, A, all the formulas are well, re, um, well scientifically researched, right? Secondly, um, we, 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 most of our product line is in a liquid form, so it's efficacy, right? Thirdly, one of the things I wanted to stress also was safety. Right. Um, to be fair, any of our products, if the horse was to get into it and drank a whole gallon of it all at once, right, 
the worst that will probably happen to him is that he, he, um, he he'll get diarrhea. Okay. Um, you know, so you won't have to, um, pump his stomach or anything like that. So, uh, that, that was one of the things. And fourthly, one of the major things that we also looked at was, um, testability because a lot of the people who use these type of products are in competition. Right. And so one of the guiding lines or the, the things that guided us in the formulation of our product is to make sure that whatever herb we're using does not have ingredients that can potentially give you a, a positive test. Okay. Right. And so those are some of the things that, that right. made us really different. So I wanted to tell everybody that you can, they can go to your website at omegaalpha.ca and they can find the complete line of horse products and human products and pet products there. And you do have a lot of different products for, for the horses uh, and, and covering a number of different areas from blood to coat, to, uh, energy, uh, joints, kidneys. And, you know, I think you, you have a complete line here the way it looks. Yes, we do. We do, uh, yeah, we have a very complete line, and it's not only for the racing crowd; it's also for the um, for your backyard horse, also because backyard horses also have problems or issues, right? And what we're into is maintaining health of the horse. That's one of the overriding key things in our product line: is to maintain the good health of your horse. Well, there you go, and and you know we, as I said, we thank you and we appreciate you uh, becoming part of the Stable Scoop Show, and of course we're going to be talking about your products uh, from here on. And what's really neat is, and I know th- that Helena was very excited because her husband is a nutritionist, so she actually understands a lot more of of what these kinds of things do than I do. Am I wrong? And I believe wholeheartedly in 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 the herbal root. I really, really do because I mean I think that's the foundation of all modern um, pharmaceuticals. That's right. You know, one modern, yeah, one of the things I, I, I would like to point out is the difference between a modern pharmaceutical and a herbal product is that with a pharmaceutical, you have one active ingredient. And the issue with one active ingredient, in order to get a pharmacological dose on one active ingredient, you've got to crank up that concentration. And anytime you crank up the concentration of the one active ingredient, any side effects associated with one active ingredient usually goes up also. Whereas when we do a herbal product, um, we tend to use formulas, and the rationale with the formulas is that a, um, you don't need the the, wrong, the the active ingredients are usually in lower concentrations, but you have many different active ingredients working together to give you the net pharmacological effect that you're looking for, right? But b, because they're in lower doses, um, the side effects are usually not additive if there's any at all. Right? right, And thirdly, a lot of these herbs have been in use for a long time. So it's not as though we woke up one morning and said, well, we just found this herb. Let's see what it does. Right, And because they've been used for a long time, there's a, a long history of use. And there's also a long history of, um, of, of research. And if there's any side effects, usually that's known. Right. right? And so th- that's one of the ways that also um, separates Omega Alpha out from some of these other companies. All right, great. Well, we, as I said, we really appreciate you becoming part of it, and uh, we hope that we can help get the word out here in the United States and, and some other countries about your products. Beautiful. Thank you. Now, I know he's a fascinating guy. I know you could have spoken to him all day. 
I know. You know, so he whipped my little scientific whistle there. I know. I know. You and my wife both are really, really into the health of the horse. And I mean, who isn't? But you two are like nerds. Uh, mm. You're really into horse health and, and diagnosing things and endless emails back and forth about a, 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 a <laughs> situation with your horse. Am I wrong here? No. No. <laughs> You know, we feel like we owe it to our creatures here to know to understand what we can. We well, that, you know, her first site she goes to every morning is thehorse.com, who's an affiliate of ours, and we appreciate them carrying our shows because she really is a health nerd. And I think there are a certain amount of the horse uh, owner population that, that are health nerds. And, and uh, you guys just have the bug a little more than I do. Um, I'm more into Kathleen, who's riding across the country on her wild adventure. So let's yeah, get just to... because she reports back on the best bacon cheeseburgers <laughs> in the country. She talks about and, food. And what Shawna, do you, you were talking. <laughs> I mean, if if we could use if horses ate meat, my goodness, you'd be feeding them cheeseburgers. <laughs> All right. Train. Let's talk to Kathleen. We caught up with her earlier in the day, and she gave us a report on what's going on on her wild ride across the country. Well, hi, Kathleen, and welcome back to the Stable Scoop Show and Kathleen's Wild Ride. We are sorry we missed you last week. You were out in the middle of the mountain someplace. Yep, crossing Holbrook Mountain, over here in eastern Idaho. No reception for some strange reason. Yeah, when you're 9,000 feet up, that happens, I think. I guess. I don't know why they can't get a tower up there. <laughs> I actually have to have pull up a map and see where Idaho is. <laughs> Sorry, people. Well, you'll see when you look at Google Maps, you know, that overview, you're going to see a picture of Kathleen right there. Um, so, <laughs> Kathleen, you have been, have you had your first experience camping out now, or are you still, uh, you're still going from uh, nice, generous person to nice, generous person? Actually, I've been camping out for about a week and a half now. Oh, really? Okay. And how's yeah, that I, going? Once I left early, I started camping out again. It's going great. I mean... Yeah, I love to stay with people. It's awesome, but, you know, camping out is kind of fun, too, and it means that I can sleep in if I get a chance. Yeah. <laughs> you and the horses There's pressure both. when you stay with... There's a little bit of pressure when you stay with strange people. I mean, they they become friends, but you're still... You know, you have to be on your best behavior. You can't pick your nose. You, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> maybe yeah, maybe that's not me. quite the first thing I would have chose, but uh, all right. <laughs> I'm jo I guess what I'm trying to say is camping out is kind of nice. I agree with you, Kathleen. <laughs> Yeah, when I, I mean, I can sleep until all hours of 7 o'clock in the morning. It's awesome. So what town are you in now? In? I am in Preston, Idaho. Preston, okay, because I'm looking up from where you were the last time here that we talked. Well, you've, you've, uh, you've actually moved along uh, since we talked to you two weeks ago. Yeah. You've made some pretty yeah, good progress. Yeah, we've We're actually about 70 miles from the border, I think. So what's your next state here? Wyoming. Dun, dun, dun. Now, Wyoming sounds like you're going to be camping out a little, too. Matter of fact, it looks like you're going to be camping out a little. Yeah, Wyoming can be a little bit of a, a problematic state to cross because there are very large expanses where there is nothing. I'm looking here. and the, that, is nothing. That Cache National Forest is quite large. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and it's not really a national forest. It's not like there's you know, trees and everything. <laughs> it's just like big, empty space forest, like if a tree falls. And no one's around to hear yeah. it for us. Yeah. <laughs> now, I really care. Everybody else there. You're on a couple yeah, day no, break. It's a big white state. You're on a huh? couple. You're on a, last time we talked. You were just starting with your new Australian saddle, and 
you're on a couple day break right now, according to what we've read on. And by the way, people can follow you on Facebook. Just search for Kathleen's Wild Ride or they can follow you on your blog. And there's a link right from Facebook there. So now you um, you are having a little bit of a tough time with your your saddle and fit and saddle sores on the horse, right? Well, the saddle sore showed up from before I switched to the Australian saddle. Those okay. were from my jumper saddle. Because we did so many big, huge days in a row with a small jumper saddle, which put all the pressure on certain points in her back. Okay. And so the Australian saddle actually fits her back well. It's just a little wide, so it can be a little bit of, of a pressure on her withers. But my friend Patty, who owns Gallup Saturday in Portland, is sending me a pad that should fix that issue. Great. Great. Once I get the well, you know what we need to do is we need to hook you up with a um, an equine massage therapist along the way. For well, her know, or the horse? Because I caught one. <laughs> oh, do you? Well, I had an equine massage therapist in Buell who did both horses and they did a world of wonders for the horses. So, yeah, anytime we can get an equine massage therapist, that is fantastic. And, you know, if they want to get me one, too, I, I'm not going to protest. <laughs> <laughs> we put a call out to all the equine massage therapists in Wyoming, of which there's probably one. <laughs> So <laughs> you never know who you're going to meet in the forest. That one's on vacation, <laughs> Kathleen. I might find him broken down on the side of the road. <laughs> so now you've are had you still a, having, Go ahead. Dick. I'm sorry. Are you still having a good time with this, or is this has it become a, a real challenge yet? Well, you know what? I'm still having a pretty good time. My biggest concern has only been on this trip to horses. You know, I always worry about them. I want to make sure that they're safe and sound and everything, but I'm having an absolute ball. <laughs> it's really a lot of fun. <laughs> and I know it's been much different than you expected it to be. Um, and I assume you you started camping out, so you haven't run into any bears at this point. <laughs> no, there's been no bears at the fairgrounds that I'm camped out in. Okay. <laughs> That's good. That's good. We're glad to hear that. Um, and the horses are, are there in, in last night. Oh, all right. Well, they don't eat much. <laughs> Maybe you know what you should just no, leave, no. Leave a, you should get a couple of extra bacon uh, cheeseburgers and leave them out for the coyotes. <laughs> now, well, I do them the raisins from the trail mix because yeah. <laughs> so you found um, you've still been finding the hospitality along the way. You know what? It's been amazing. I mean, when I got here, I stopped to get something to eat and asked the girl if there was a place I could put my horses up and somebody who might get me some hay, and she ran next door and came back and said that there's a gentleman who says you can put him up at the fairgrounds and he'll bring you all the hay you want. <laughs> and he has. He's brought me four bales so far, and he's going to bring me two more on Friday or Saturday. And that's interesting because, you know, you say about fairgrounds. You've been saying that all along here about all the different fairgrounds. We're not used – not every town in the east has fairgrounds. That that must be a western thing. Well, they don't here either. Okay. They don't. It's only the county seat. Uh, well, I've been really lucky. Is I've hit almost every county seat going across southern Idaho. So I'm, I mean, I was in the county seat when I was in Malad, and so they had a fairgrounds, and I'm here in this county, and I'm in the county seat, which is in Preston, and I believe the county seat for the next county is Montpelier. So oh, wow. I think I'm going to be pretty lucky there too. <laughs> wow. Well, well, this is this is uh, it's been fun following you, of course, uh, Mary and and uh, and her dedicated loyal husband uh, have been uh, yeah have been uh, keeping us up to date on Facebook. So that's been kind of nice. And you've yeah, been Mary, writing we're, into we're, your blog. I'm following religiously. I love my <laughs> Facebook updates. Uh, you know, Katie called and oh la la. It's 
yeah, we're following it. Boy, Very if, close. If you don't answer Mary's call, she gets upset. Oh, she's a riot. I mean, she's called me three and five times a day. <laughs> she's like, I tried Kathleen nine times, but I didn't get an answer. I'm going to try her again. Oh, like, yeah, where you, is she? Where you, is she? Answer the phone. Do you remember we, when we talked two weeks ago, we sort of, de- we sort of called her your mom, your, your, your adopted mom. She didn't like that, oh, by the way. We, we, we did not no. call that. You said that she was motherly. <laughs> I got an email. Boy, did I get an email. Nurturing, I'm only one Glenn. year older than her. <laughs> you never say motherly. You say nurturing. That's oh, just that's, a guy thing. I don't yeah. think that would help with Mary. I think it means the same thing, pretty much. <laughs> but, Mary, we love you. Pretty much. And so. I, I'm, uh-huh. I, I'm still waiting for my, my cashier daddy. <laughs> <laughs> so when are you heading out again? When do you think are, are the first of all the sores healing and are you going to be able to head out soon? Oh yeah, she's healing up really well. Um, we'll be out of here probably Sunday, uh, Monday at the absolute latest. And, and now I've got a guy who's going to drive me the back way to get to Montpelier, so I don't have to go up the highway. Oh good, okay. Show me how to get on the on the Forest Service road, <laughs> so that'll be fun. Good. And now we've had some pretty interesting moments on this trip. Yeah. Yeah, I had a very surreal moment where I was sitting on top of a mountain, next to a, in, a, in a very comfortable chair, talking to a guy next to his horse trailer, drinking a coke and eating a little Debbie cake. <laughs> it was very weird to be in the middle of the Rocky Mountains doing that with some really nice older cowboy. <laughs> oh, that's nice. That definitely needs to go in the book. Now, do you have a camera phone on your cell phone? I do have a camera phone, and I get so mad because I'll ride away, and then I'll go, oh, I should have taken a picture of that. And I totally <laughs> yeah, I don't think you're taking nearly enough pictures. Um, well, no, because I forget. I, I take them with my camera, and I take them with my phone, and they don't all go. I mean, I send Mary at least a picture a day. I guess she calls me 15 times if I don't. I will load a couple of them. She has been posting, and we enjoy seeing the pictures, too. Um, now, are your plans still to, I mean, this is taking you a lot longer than I think you had projected, correct, at this point? Yeah, because we keep getting laid up for days. You know, I keep having to wait for things to be shipped to me, or I keep, like, I'm taking a week off to rest the horses. I might change my plans a little bit just to get across Wyoming, because I am a little concerned with how um, desolate the state is. Yeah. Because there is nothing in the, in the, in the lower parts for over 100 miles in some places. So I might... Do what I call cheating a little bit and hit a ride across part of that state. Yeah, that's a little bit. That that is a big big state. I'm looking at the Cache National Forest by satellite, and um, well, it's very mountainous. Yeah, those hills look pretty big there, Kathleen. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they are. But if if you think about it, I'm coming out of the Rocky Mountains, so I'm sitting in the middle of the third valley in the Rocky Mountains I have hit. And if I look on all directions, all I see is mountain ranges. So I'm completely surrounded mm. by mountains right now. And this is the third one I've climbed and gotten into. So and I guess the, is the goal... We're used to the mountains. And I'm, hmm? I was just going to say, is the goal still to uh, push on and, and hope to finish this year? Or has it become a two-parter now? No, I'd really like to finish this year if I can. I'm there, I mean, we might have to take a trailer right here in the next couple of weeks. But I think once I get to Nebraska, we should smooth out because things are pretty flat after that. Yeah, you're you're gonna be. It's, <laughs> it'll be easy riding in Nebraska. You just have to duck tornadoes occasionally. But uh, <laughs> right, find a ditch. <laughs> but there's always find a ditch. <laughs> there's always a farm. You know, the next farm is within sight. So, 
Well, this has been great, yeah. Kathleen. We're glad. Uh, one thing I always ask you every time is, uh, the food been good? <laughs> Actually, it's been pretty good, yeah. What's nice is I just had a family show up today, and they brought me a Coke and some fresh strawberries out of their garden, so I can't really complain. <laughs> well, this is great, Kathleen. Good luck, and we, uh, we wish you uh, uh, some good trails here when you head out again, and we hope that the saddle sores have healed up and that the new paddle work for you. Oh, I hope so, too. Thank you, guys. All right. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye-bye, Kathleen. All right. Bye. bye. Well, she did have the giggles, didn't she, Helena? Yes, she did. There was something in that. Coca-Cola. I know, I know. She sounds like she's in terrific spirit. She's into this trip now, I think seven weeks. And it's definitely going slower than she thought because she's had some issues along the way that she didn't plan on. And, you know, it sounds one of the things I give her credit for is like with the saddle sores now, she's taken a week and, and just stayed in the same spot for a week, giving the horse a time, horses time to heal. So she's not pushing Yeah, she's them. not being a, a yahoo or anything. She's really doing it the right way. Right. She's, she's really she's... giving them a chance and she's trying to get all the corrective pads and everything that she can to solve the problem she's having along the way. Unfortunately, she's been getting a lot of help doing that and apparently fed pretty well. <laughs> So let's, uh, let's head on over to Equestrian Collections and talk about them for a minute, and then we'll be talking about the unwanted horses, the, stories, uh, the story of the Mustang in America. Hi, Glenn Geek here. One of the reasons I am so proud to have Equestrian Collections as a sponsor on the Horse Radio Network is they are one of the most innovative companies in the equine retail world. Their website is so easy to get around and offers so much for the shopper. One of those things it offers is numerous online catalogs. Flip through the pages just like a real catalog. Find something you like, click on it, and buy it immediately. One of the catalogs up there right now is the Summer Tent Sale Catalog loaded with savings. Five pages of savings. So you go to equestriancollections.com and click on the Tent Sale Catalog right there on the home page. And flip away, find stuff you like, and buy it right there off the catalog. It's so cool. That's something you can't do when you're sitting on your couch with a catalog. So you can check out all the different catalogs available at equestriancollections.com. And, you know, we always say it, but it's true. Equestrian Collections does provide the universe of equestrian shopping at your fingertips at a price you can afford. Now, Helena, this two-part series that we're replaying here on the Stable Scoop show was, was done by Alan Moorhead and Jimmy K. Cox, who are the hosts of the Western Radio Show. And, of course, they've been on our show as well. Uh, but they're doing a terrific job over at a, a westernradioshow.com with a number of different subjects. And one of those subjects that they decided to take on, because they knew this gentleman, was Dr. Don Hoagland. He's a, he's a veterinarian who's been intimately involved with the roundup of Mustangs, with the care of Mustangs, and the, the treatment of Mustangs, and what should happen next. And one of the things I was impressed by is he is a veterinarian and a well-known veterinarian, is he really, he really touched on both sides of the story, not just his side, but both sides of the story. And I think that, that you're going to have a better understanding when you're done of exactly what's going on and, and where to go from here. But he sort of lets, by the end of this two-part series, you're going to go, I understand it now, but, but you know, Dr. Don sort of let it up to me to decide. And I, I kind of like that. So here we are. A, uh, this is their interview, Alan and Jimmy Kay, with Dr. Don Hoagland, who wrote the book Nobody's Horses, The Dramatic Rescue of the Wild Herd of White Sands. 
Well, Jimmy K, keeping things going today, we've got a, a great individual with us today, and he's got the horse at heart, and uh, he does a lot of advocacy work for the unwanted horse in America. As a matter of fact, he was uh, involved in, in a huge rescue of the wild herd of the White Sands, New Mexico, uh, the White Sands missile range, and there's a lot of danger in that as well. Don Hoagland uh, he spent some time in New Mexico as well as North Carolina. We catch him this evening in North Carolina. Don, thanks for joining us today on the Western Radio Show. Jimmy and Alan, it's uh, my distinct pleasure to be with you today. Uh, Thank you. Now, DVM, Doctor of Veterinary Medicine, and, and I know that you're involved with a lot of the cutting horse industry as well. You train cutters, ride cutters. Uh, and uh, what was the thing in your young life, Don, that made you want to uh, have the discipline and the dedication to go to Colorado State and, and become a veterinarian? When I was a young guy, around 19 years old, we were building steel buildings in north of Denver, Colorado, and we built a veterinary hospital for a Dr. Bailey Cotton, well-known veterinarian in the state of Colorado. And I had my sights on going to Colorado State University to be what we used to call a game warden and then became a conservation officer for animals. And as I got to know Bailey Cotton and built a building for him and discussed what his life was about and me having ridden horses since I was five or six years old and interested in rodeo and, and loved the roping aspect of rodeo and the visceral need for a horse chasing the cow around, I, I took a look at veterinary medicine and realized that I'd just taken on probably the most difficult academic <laughs> environment that there could be, given it's really about three times harder than getting into medical school academically. But I looked at Colorado State and I decided to change my ways from high school and and sit down and try to learn my ABCs, learn how to write and read, and went on to Colorado State, and lo and behold, I became a veterinarian and uh, left Colorado State University with a degree in 1984. Wow. So you were you went actually to build a building and, <laughs> and was sitting there talking to the vet and said, hey, I think this is what I'm supposed to do. He was on the business end of a, a great big syringe and talking to a cow, and I, and I said, you know, this is really the heart and soul of health and medicine for the animal. I'd like to be involved in that. I just didn't know if I had the academic potential. I, I threw a football to get myself into college, and I wasn't any good at that. So <laughs> my grades suffered a little bit in high school, and, and uh, I had to change my life entirely. The competition was tremendous. A, a veterinarian by the name of James Harriet, which is a pen name, a fellow from uh, Yorkshiredale in Scotland, had just written a book called all creatures great and small, and it flooded the world, flooded the world with uh, little young ladies and, and boys wanting to become veterinarians, and so the competition became tremendously stiff. Colorado State University has been, for almost 15 years, been the number one rated accredited veterinary teaching hospital in North America, and so that even made it worse, and, and what gave it such good credentials back in that time was all the major professors wanted to ski, and they wanted to live in just north of Denver, Colorado. So that made it one really fine institution. There are 34 really fine institutions in North America right now, but I got to go to one of the best, kind of the, the Harvard, if you will, of veterinary yeah. teaching hospitals. See, here in Texas, we have a, a, a pretty decent institution for uh, for veterinarian school. It's called Texas A&M, but we have no place to ski around there. <laughs> God, you don't even have snow. Around. Well, y'all had a lot of snow this winter. 
Yeah, not enough to ski and surely don't have any mountains. So Colorado's <laughs> got us beaten that. You can ski in and learn a little bit about animals up there. Well, from building buildings in, into Colorado State, and obviously the NFL was not into building plan and, uh, and going into uh, animal welfare in the first place and changing over to veterinarian college. Uh, Don, talk a little bit about the specifics and, and how intricate uh, the studies are for becoming a veterinarian because you talked about being tougher to get in than medical school. Uh, you know, you go to medical school, you learn how to work on humans. Of course, there's a lot of diseases. And, and when you go to the veterinarian school, talk about how many animals you have to learn about to get the degree. Back in the days when I went to veterinary school, we looked at six major groups of animals, the livestock animals, the horse being separate from the cow, being separate from the, from the goat and the, the pig and the sheep. Those are kind of lumped into one category. And then, of course, there's the what we call today the companion animals, or our, what we used to call pets, the dogs and the cat. And then there's the exotic birds, which is the avian species, which, which would include all of our turkeys oh, and our chickens as well as wouldn't our Wouldn't it be fun to work on a bird? It, it is interesting. It's uh, <laughs> like being the ultimate pediatrician. They're constantly on the move. In, in veterinary medicine, we don't have symptoms, meaning the bird doesn't walk in and say, you know, doctor, every time I move my elbow, on my wing there, it hurts a little bit. We, right. we have to look at signs only. We don't have any symptoms. And so that doubles the load. And then most of our targets are moving until we can get close enough to them, which is part of my life today, a horse behavior study. So you have to be a bit of a bird whisperer, huh? A little bit of a bird <laughs> whisperer, yes. You have to be That's able to be an one. animal whisperer. Right. you got to well, read thanks. the signs. It sounds like a... Sounds like a radio program to me, the bird whisperer. <laughs> Maybe we, well, well, Jimmy K sings like a bird. She sung the national anthem at the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo. You talked about uh, Carl Stressman a while ago. I mean, heck, it's, it's just an uh, awesome deal with, with the whole thing. And how long was the Colorado State program? The minimum that anybody that I know of that got into school, in the vet, finished veterinary school, was seven years. Four years undergraduate, some right. finishing three and a half or three, some of the brilliant ones, which I'm not in that group. And then the, <laughs> the professional school is four years. The average now is eight and a half years Ouch. in some colleges, and sometimes it's as much as 10 years. Now, frankly, even though I did so poorly in high school, I was much graduated much closer to the bottom of my class than I did the top. But when it, when it came time to get into veterinary school, things had to change. And if you got a B, you might as well flunk the course if you were going to apply to veterinary school. So it was quite strenuous. The competition was the, the same people were competing for medical school positions. But any of my classmates who applied to medical school and got into veterinary school got into the medical school of their choice as well. We just chose animal medicine over human medicine. That's cool. That's way cool. You mentioned earlier, too, when we were talking before we came online, that now there are approximately 8 of 10 veterinarians out there are women. Yes, there has been a gender change. And so let's don't uh, narrow ourselves into a discussion of saying that feminization of veterinary medicine that we've seen over the last 25 years. It comes as a result strictly because of the proficient brain power of young ladies coming out of the urban centers primarily. And so it's really the urbanization of veterinary medicine that we're facing today. And it is eight out of ten are um, female gender today, which make the best veterinarians, by the way, much better than I have been or ever will be, but it is the urbanization which has caused us to have to take a look at what we need to do today in the profession because we've lost our agriculture backgrounds. 
And so we, I am teaching a course right now for North Carolina State, just finished a pilot for all the schools in the nation on advanced horse handling because we veterinarians are approaching an animal that really does not want us around, and we're inside their safe distance of three feet about 80% of the time. And so though any of us can handle the horse that will stand there, the dressage horse that's been cross-tied nearly his whole life, and you can touch and poke and prod just about anywhere you want, Right. The other 50% of the horses do not want us around. They smell the vitamins and the penicillin on us. They smell our clothing. They know our, the sound of our engine. And it's really hard on us when you drive onto a farm and you see all the horses moved to the back of the pens. They have such a I keen sense. I feel a little bit like uh, a dentist. <laughs> sure. Well, they have such a keen sense anyway of, of smell, and they've got such a flight reaction. And right. like you said earlier, so many of our large ranch lands are being sold as subdivisions. They're being subdivided. And so, yeah, we are very much becoming urbanites, you know, more so than we used to be. So I can see how that definitely would change the 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 vet industry. And, you know, 8 of 10 doesn't really sound that bad because I've got a, a 17-year-old son. Uh, he's a rising senior. As a matter of fact, we took a trip uh, this last week to the University of Georgia to visit the campus, and, and that's where he wants to do his undergraduate. We're out of state. He also wants to do his vet school studies there. Uh, you know, 8 to 10, there's a lot of gals in that. That sounds good for a guy. But but what would your advice be, Don, uh, to get some of the guys involved back uh, uh, into being veterinarians and going to the school? You know, that is the number one question being asked at the level of the deans of the veterinary colleges across North America, and that includes Canada, is how do we entice males back into the profession? Our, our profession has become a second income profession, although it has changed drastically since my early practice days in terms of economics. It is the number one concern across the nation right now at all of the major American Association of Equine Practitioners and Bovine Practitioners meetings annually is what to do about that now. That's why we taught the course at North Carolina State right. just recently for that very reason. We look at the young male coming out of an agriculture background or coming out of the urban centers, and we ask him to take a look at the rewards of being a veterinarian, being your own businessman. The first thing you're going to do most of the time is you'll exit school and enter a business, you're a businessman at the same time, and we tell you to take a look at getting the very best grades you can possibly get. Reading, writing, and arithmetic are critical in the life sciences studies today. We did need to get the young people to understand that it is absolutely worth their time to study just as hard as the ladies always have in order right. to be able to compete with them. Keep in mind, in veterinary schools, just because you're a male and get good grades, you have to get grades equal to the ladies. And if you don't, then legally it would be very hard for you just because you're gender male to allow you into veterinary school ahead of a female who's equally as qualified. So you have to understand sex is removed from the admissions process right. while we take a look at what your background is, what your potential is, and how you handled yourself throughout your undergrad career. Get the grades. It's a, I'm asked every single day of my life, what can I do to better myself, better prepare myself for veterinary school? Grades. Take as many as you can, get as much experience in veterinary clinics and at animal-related institutions as you can, get good veterinarians on your side to write letters and cross your fingers and say whatever kind of prayer you like to pray. <laughs> well, And, you know, it surprises me. You would think that all of these young ladies would be enticing enough for these young fellows to step up and, and get back yeah. in vet school. 
And let me tell you, of the course that I just finished teaching, with the there was the four to one uh, female, and they were as pretty as any Vogue magazine <laughs> I've ever seen. Things have you changed go, girls. since nineteen ten. They're not as ugly as I was. <laughs> now I'm telling you, I, yeah, I'm such a uh, uh, fanatic about women anyway. You know how I feel about that, Alan. Yep. Pretty girls in school with lots of brain power, taking care of animals, get after it. I'm behind y'all. There you go, going with and it. I, and I will let you know it is really intimidating when you sit there and look at those young ladies and you know behind that pretty face is one big chunk of gray matter. <laughs> Boy, what a sexy way to say that. Yeah, it, yeah, you're winning Jimmy K over, that's for sure. I'll tell you what. Now you know why, Alan, I don't have any friends. is because uh, I can't straighten those kind of comments out. Brown noser. Love it. I'll tell you. Now, do you specialize at all, or, or, or was it just general DVM medicine for you, Dr. Hoagland? Uh, I practiced in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and, and that's where I met Bill Richardson, which we'll speak about in just a little bit. But yeah. I, I practiced whatever it took to pay the bills, whether it was a boa constrictor or somebody's pet hamster or it was somebody's prized bull, Angus bull, or horses. And later on, uh, five or six years into my practice life, then I tended to migrate over toward uh, equine only. And then uh, as my practice career went on, I was pretty much uh, in the Western performance, sport performance horses. And uh, that's you... where I met Bill Richardson, who was uh, at the time a congressman in the Northern District of New right. Mexico and went on to become uh, Ambassador of the United Nations and then Secretary of Energy under the uh, Clinton administration and is now just finishing up his uh, two tours as the governor of New Mexico. And, in fact, we're talking right now about a new wild horse sanctuary in the state of New Mexico and a new prison program of the three that I was involved in 25 years ago. None exist now in that state of New Mexico. They've been transferred to other states, and now the governor wants to put a new one in as we speak today. Yeah, Governor Richardson is is huge on the whole Western industry. He's, he's a great proponent of, of the Western world and in, in rodeos in New Mexico. Yes, he is. And, you know, the interesting thing about Bill, I spent a lot of time with him in the state of New Mexico and in Washington, D.C., uh, advocacy for free-roaming horse populations. But, you know, I always wondered and asked him at times, why did you get involved in such a touchy <laughs> subject? And that is trying to deal with animal rights activists and the pro-rodeo scene, and then on the other hand, trying to deal with the advocacy group for the, for the quote-unquote wild horse. And he just he said he didn't really know exactly why it was just the humanitarian spirit. Now, he can talk all day long like politicians always do. But it's what you do that tells me who you are. Right. And his Absolutely. words had value. His words truly had value. And so even though he's on the Democrat side of things, and quite frankly, I've never voted on the Democrat side. Right. I'm, I'm more on leaning toward the uh, conservative side I'm with you. of political issues. But Bill, uh, he's a guy to vote for. And I don't know what his next steps are, but if he doesn't go on to the Senate, I think we'd really be making a mistake. Well, they like him in New Mexico. They've kept him around there for a while, hadn't they? Yeah, they sure have, and I think yep. this is his last year. I think he's done in the fall. And so uh, my partner that I did, Dr. Mike Callahan from Pecos, New Mexico, who I did all of my wild horse uh, work with, it was in Bill Richardson's office, I believe, last Thursday afternoon, giving him a uh, an award from the American Mustang and Burrow Association for his work on developing another sanctuary for some of the horses that are uh, sitting in capture pens that 34,000 head we'll talk about. 
Now you mentioned, you know, with Mr. Richardson, uh, Governor Richardson, helping or helping you out with some some situations there. It, you also mentioned the prison program and the wild horses. Talk a little bit about your involvement in in bringing wild horses into the New Mexico prison system and uh, allowing the inmates to serve as tamers and trainers. Uh, was it was it for the inmates or was it for the horses? It had to be for both. I just think this is the best idea. Yes, it's a truly a win-win. The horse is what I call the mirror. It, it is a mirror of the emotional barometric pressure of a human being. Gentleness begets right. gentle, and aggression begets aggression in the okay. horse. So the horse was a re- has been, over the course of domestication, some 3,500 or 4,500 years now, the horse has really been a good mate for the human being, probably better mate than in the reverse, the, the human toward the animal. But Bill Richardson came to me and said, listen, we, we have a, a 34 prisoners just uh, had a riot in the early 1980s. Uh, they rioted. They killed each other. I got out of the community. They really wreaked havoc. The governor at the time, uh, Gary Carruthers at the time, was about to lose his job. Bill said, you know, would you be willing to go to Washington, D.C. with me and talk about the benefits, the win-win synergy that we might be able to get out of combining uh, men, mud, and mustangs? And the mud part of it was that we would build corrals out of an adobe process that was going to be used to take over to Afghanistan when the Russians pulled out the first time and left Afghanistan to be the way it has developed today. The mud being that the people in Afghanistan build using adobe. Well, in the state of New Mexico, adobe is a big deal, too. So the governor came, said, would you go to Washington? I said, sure, I'll I'll do everything I can to keep out of trouble. We went to Washington, D.C., we talked to many members of Congress, both in the Senate and in the Congressional Dining Room and in the uh, Capitol Hill. Then we came back to New Mexico. We were given an appropriation money to develop from one small 500-head horse uh, prison inmate wild horse training center in Las Lunas, New Mexico, into three, one to be included in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and another at the state penitentiary in Santa Fe. And for seven annual contracts, I officiated the the veterinary care under competitive bid, along with Dr. Mike Callahan, still in New Mexico. And we, we did the veterinary care and the training of uh, inmates on how to handle an inherently violent situation without violence, meaning don't beget aggression. And right. so when you left prison as an inmate and went home, you hopefully would learn how to handle, how to back away from a problem than to go headlong into it. And there isn't a prison inmate that I ever met that didn't have aggression issues, whether it's learned in prison itself or they brought it with them into prison. So that just gives me chills. So so you got to see firsthand the 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 change in, in not only, I'm sure, the horses, but in the inmates. We saw a change in man and Mustang. And the families would write letters that would bring more than a grown man could take about how there's been a change in the in the human wow. being. For, and, and for instance, normally it is rated, at least in the state of New Mexico, although I don't know what the empirical data is specifically, about 8 out of 10 guys go back to prison after they get out. Yeah. And we were told by for 10 years after the program uh, was sent on to other states, because other states wanted to use it for in their prison programs as well, that two in ten were back in prison, and the other eight were not out there otherwise harassing you or your daughter and son. Wow. That is, you know, you said it best, though. 
And and when you said a while ago that a horse is a mirror of yeah. human emotion, you were so absolutely right on that. Because even in our industry, in, in Alan and mine's doing rodeos, you put a nervous rider on a a laid back horse and they get nervous. Absolutely. And and vice versa. So to know that about the inmates because you can't fake your way with working with the horse. They either they feel they can feel a fly on their back and they can feel your emotion. So what an incredible program that was. I I, just, I can't even imagine you know, with, the good re- uh, excuse me. I interrupted you. The the important aspect for all of that is to understand that there are other places that we can use this, whether we use it with equine-assisted psychotherapy things in children, with disabled children, disadvantaged right. children, or whether we use it in another program that I might bring in briefly, and that is that Fort Bragg, that now the largest, largest uh, force comm air, uh, army base in the United States now, right. is just 35 minutes south of my home, and the, the leadership there brought me in to talk about using this very program that we used in prison inmates for returning active theater GIs showing signs of post-traumatic stress disorder, trying to teach the soldier how to decompress when, in fact, uh, they go home, they see the 14-year-old child in the other room who's arguing with them. It takes them back to argument in active theater uh, in Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever they had to have been in the world, and then they go headlong into the child instead of backing away and understanding that the child is a reflection of their behavior just as was the horse. So we are now actively engaged in talking about using the free-roaming horse, the wild, so-called wild horse, for, to help our soldiers and the heroes returning from war. Well, well you know, Dr. Don, I'm, I'm a little... Uh, sensitive or partial to the Afghanistan story because I visited there on the pro rodeo tour about a year and a half ago and met some of the most incredible people I've ever or will ever meet in my life being our our men and women that are are fighting for us over there and defending our nation and our world. And so to talk about things like that, to bring them home and to to have them do therapy with horses, I I just, I I don't see how you could go wrong with that. I think that's such a win-win for everyone. And it's always been one of my favorite sayings, and, and I can't remember which politician it was. Some say it was Ronald Reagan, and, and it even goes back to Roosevelt or somewhere. But uh, uh, they've always said the best thing for the inside of a person is the outside of a horse. Just get your hands on, and uh, it's going to make everything better. Now, were you ever concerned about your safety at all, uh, not only with the horses, but with the inmates? When you, were, were they apprehensions when you first went into that prison program? The prison of the Roughly 4,000 prison inmates that went through the program and the nearly 20,000 head of uh, former Mustangs that were dealt with during that program, I didn't have a single inmate get set back in as a result of violent behavior, not one time. A few went back in because it was a little bit stressful for them to handle that. They didn't have any kind of uh, agriculture background originally, although that wasn't a requirement. But right. safety is paramount in any program, whether it's a prison inmate, a soldier, a, a senior veterinary student, a professor of veterinary college of 30 years duration, surgeon, any of them, safety's primary concern. So was I concerned? Absolutely. But the, my primary advocacy for the prison inmate was to understand that there would be no violence in the training. Now, it is inherent to any aiming of a horse, any of the, quote, gentling process, that it's going to get a little bit Western, especially with the Mustang. So let's just stand back and understand it's going to get Western. But let's set ourselves up for success, and that's the very tenet of the teaching program that I teach today, is that if you don't set yourself up for success, you can be pretty well guaranteed you're going to fail. So 
So understand what we taught prison inmates is the same thing I'm teaching a student today and the same thing I'm teaching a soldier elsewhere. And that is understand I'm going to hand you technique. I'm not going to tell you one is right, one is wrong, one is better, one is worse. What I'm going to teach you is technique that is more efficient. Use this efficient technique. And when this one fails, and some do, go to your bag of techniques and let's pull out another technique. But we want to ask a horse to do something. If he doesn't do it, then we're going to tell him. And then if he doesn't do that, then we're going to make him. But if you dominate a horse, whether it is a Mustang, and I've trained a bathtub full of them. I still train them today. I train brain-damaged horses every day of my life. (laughs) If you dominate them, you lose them. So what you have to do is understand, look, gentle's all fine and well. Yes, we're going to be gentle. But there's going to come a point where we're going to apply some pressure, and he's going to reject it. And when he rejects that pressure, set yourself up for success. So get the situation set up where it's going to be a positive outcome. So we're going to teach man that, and we're going to teach horse that. You gotta, Just like raising kids. you got to find that spot to make them feel comfortable. Now, what was the selection? How did you get involved with the dramatic rescue of the wild herded White Sands Missile Range there in New Mexico? At the time, I had uh, finished the prison inmate program in New Mexico. We sent the prison programs to other states, Susanville, California, one in Wyoming, and a couple in Oklahoma. And uh, a guy came to, to me from Europe to... He, uh, his name is Mario Luroki, and I came to understand that Mario was the most accomplished horseman in the world. Now, I say accomplished rather than best. I, who's the best football coach or who's the best tennis player or who's really, in fact, the best roper? Uh, that all depends on what the conditions were at the time. But Mario now, Luroki is, is, said... This is the same guy. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this is the same guy that has, uh, like, the King Arthur's Court and things like that at the Excalibur in Vegas. Am I right? Absolutely. Mario Larashi came to me in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and said, hey, I'm, uh, I'm going to set up this program at Excalibur Hotel, brand-new program called King Arthur's Tournament at the Excalibur Hotel, and I'm also going to do a 13-part series with Terrence Hill of My Name is Nobody fame, spoof Lone Ranger Westerns for European television to do a, a 13-part series called Lucky Luke. And, he, and Mario wanted to know if I would get involved in those two programs, and during the middle of that, I, I would get on an airplane and fly from Albuquerque over to Las Vegas, and that's where I cut my teeth on live entertainment show was there. And then those guys went on to do the movie A Knight's Tale, and that show is ongoing. used to be 80% horsework. Now it's about 20% horsework. And then one night, a guy, a fellow by the name of Michael Eisner showed up, and he's the CEO of Disney, wanting to do a rodeo in Europe. And Ooh. we talked to him rather about do something that's been successful since 1895, and that is Buffalo Bill Wild West Show. Right. But you might want to call it, since I'm a stickler on names, why don't you call it Bisonville, since we don't have any buffalo over here. <laughs> we have bison. They didn't want to change the name, but they liked the idea of doing the Buffalo Bills, a reenactment of the show underneath the Eiffel Tower in 1895, put out at the brand-new, to-be-built uh, Euro Disneyland complex, now called Disneyland Paris, uh, in Marnier. Uh, in Paris, uh, Marnier, France, right by Paris. And so Mario said, hey, would you like to go along and do that uh, that show with me as well? And so we created with Michael Eisner, and, and I trained all of Michael Eisner's personal family homes and sent them up to the Aspen Snowmass area, and at the same time shipped all the horses, cowboys, and Native Americans from here over to do an authentic recreation of Buffalo Bill Wild West show, which is still ongoing, the um, uh, most profitable live entertainment show in the world. Really? And most gross dollars as well at Disney Paris. 
And so my son, who was 18 years old at the time, came with me and starred in the show for almost seven years. But after three years, I was called back by the military by virtue of Bill Richardson because there had been uh, 122 horses showed up dead around a single water hole 35 miles in the most secret place in the United States called right. White Sands Missile Range, the home of the atomic agent that that is where the atomic bomb was uh, first detonated. It right. was put together up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, and then detonated there. And so I was called in to see if I would capture the other 2,000 horses and get them out of there. My main concern was this. Look, 122 horses don't fall over dead all in about the same place all in the same night. <laughs> and have all these little baby horses running around, healthy as the day they were born. Now, some don't fit here. I, I'm not all that good a veterinarian. But I can tell you, uh, that didn't look right. So I told them I didn't want to do the deal, but no wasn't in their vocabulary. And all of a sudden, um, I'm at White Sands Missile Range, and I've got helicopters and stealth fighter craft and the largest NATO war games in history going on simultaneously. And that I didn't like the look of the horses. I didn't. It looked just like something that might be called anthrax. I was very scared of what was going on. I didn't want it to happen to me. And I was having a whale of a good time in Paris. I'd hired seven Chippendalers as my singer and dancers in the show <laughs> for the Disney Buffalo Bill Wild West show, and we were doing just fine. Play into the wind. So I didn't want to go. But the, the <laughs> thing is this, that we watched them very carefully. They would go to the Moulin Rouge and dance on Sundays. And one of them was five-time Playgirl Playmate of the Year. Wow. And, uh, so anyway, we had a we had a really Close good time. We kept tight control on everything that was going on from Native Americans to, to North American cowboys. And we, in fact, we interviewed 5,000 videotapes, 5,000 rodeo cowboys and others before the 110 cast and crew were selected for the show. And one female, by the way, annual <laughs> Now, Don, let's talk about, you said 2,000 horses, and they were broke up into, what, three or four herds uh, across the, uh, the, white, uh, the white sand. Um, let's talk about a little bit where they came from. And in your book, you mentioned that, that there was one band of horses, a lot of grays that looked like they might have come out of Texas, uh, and some of the bloodlines were involved in that. Some of them might have been from the herd of uh, uh, Sheriff Pat Garrett with uh, some ability kids' horses in there as well. I mean, their bloodlines. It wouldn't have been their actual horses. Uh, where did where did was there documentation or was it just figuring on on where the horses' bloodlines were that led them into the New Mexico White Sands? We have to remember that Charles Goodnight, the, the inventor of the chuck wagon and right. the main star uh, that uh, Tommy Lee Jones played in the Lonesome Dove character, the um, uh, Captain Call character, was Charles Goodnight. Charles right. Goodnight drove cattle from from Main Center, Texas, you know, Maverick cattle, into New Mexico along the Pecos River, right. uh, past John Chisholm's place, and then up north to Las Vegas, New Mexico, and then on up into Denver into the gold mines of Colorado and New Mexico. Along the route and over the course of the next 60 or so years of cattle driving, a lot of very good quarter horse, which would become quarter horse flesh, in, would come into the state of New Mexico and ranchers there would, would uh, want to breed to the stallions and, and they would have mares out of the, certain of those good horses in the wagon trails and so in the cattle trails. And so many of them stayed in New Mexico. One horse in particular was named the Badger, the original Gray Badger. We have to go back all the way back to 1908 to find Holy. that horse. Gray Badger had one son. Right. He had a daughter, a club-footed daughter, but nobody knows whatever happened to it. And he had one horse born jet black, and then ended midnight by about four and a half years, he turned gray. By about uh, ten years, he was almost white with a flame-colored mane and tail. 
And that horse, Midnight's very last son, was named Midnight Junior. And that was purchased by the famous Walter Merrick, who right. owned three, owned and raced three bars, and uh-huh. Easy Jet and others. Now, the the horse, the Easy Jet line, came out of Bella Midnight, which came out of Midnight Junior. Midnight Junior then was transferred in the middle of his life, sometime in about the ninth, late ninth, early 1940s, to uh, the vacuum cleaner Bissell family in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and, and that stallion bred just about every mare that was available, and Gray, being a dominant gene, you start seeing that horse show up. Well, you can track back to the original Badger and all the Burnett Ranch, Four Sixes Ranch uh, horses, which were come out of Gray Badger and Gray Badger 2 and on and on. You can track that DNA pretty well, and that's what I did with the DNA on some of the horses in White Sands, Missourians. The other group came out of Uvalde, Texas, were thoroughbred-looking bays, very common color at the turn of the century, owned by Sheriff Pat Garrett. The thing that really surprised me about the, the most unlucky lawman alive being Sheriff Pat Garrett, the supposed, supposedly killed Billy the Kid, was that he himself was assassinated on the very grains of sand where I'd be catching his horses yeah. left on what is now White Sands Missile Range some 50 years, 60 years later. And so the horses were good West Texas ranch horses, uh, great flesh, not Mustangs. I didn't, in fact, didn't see any Mustang, although I'm told there were Mustangs out on the Missile Range at the time. They were really, really good quality horses and a little bit bigger because on the Three Rivers area, just down from uh, Rudosa, New Mexico, in the, just north of Tularosa, right. there were some sugar beets being farmed. And so there was some draft horse blood, and you'd see the feathering in the ankles of some of the horses, and some of them ran up to 1,800 pounds when they were in good flesh. Goodness. Those are the kind wow, that can hurt you. Fascinating. What was their general health like? I mean, being out on the on the desert like that, you, you talk in your book so many times about the, the midnight influence in that bloodline and, and a lot of the folks who had their ranches that were run off of, like, uh, and one of your helpers, uh, Les Gilliland, and we'll get into his personality in just a bit, uh, he comes from a family that was out there involved in that. But what was their general health like uh, living out there on the sands? In the summer of 1994, when the 122 horses died, the general health in one of the four herds, the, the herd uh, the central, north central in the middle of White Sands Missile Range, which is 2 million acres or 4,000 square miles, north central around the thing called uh, a water spring, a calcium carbonate natural spring called Mountain Spring, that one herd is the herd that had the die-off. The military decided that all the horses, all four bands of horses would right. go, and that's what raised the hackles of all the animal rights activists was that they said, we'll just take the one herd that's doing bad and leave the others out there. But, you know, the military's not in the horse business. They're right. in the business of, sure. of uh, blowing things up <laughs> and destruction. And the horse was the horse die-off was getting in the way of life on a top-secret missile range. So all the horses were going to go. There was big battles that would happen before that would ever occur. That all horses were removed. And, in fact, there were eight stallions that hung together that I called the phantoms, and, and Patrick Morrow, wildlife biologist, reminded me that they were flesh and blood and not to be calling them ghost horses. But, you know, we never caught those eight horses. The military never caught those eight horses, and they live on White Sands Missile Range today. Even as much as a month ago, I was talking with Les Gilliland, the character you brought up earlier, a right. rancher. Well, what, that, what nobody's horses is really about is that it represents the microcosm that's going off on in North America, all across the, West, the Western United States and Canada today. That microcosm is this. Live and let live no longer applies. Urban sprawl, population growth as a result, and natural resource development has caused us to have to manage everything, and we leapfrog into our environment. And 
by roads, by electrical lines, by water needs, and, and the removal of water from natural areas, we, we are seeing that our environment is being challenged just the way it was challenged at White Sands Missile Range when you put 4,000, when you put so many hundreds of miles of barbed wire fence and kept the horses from moving from bad water areas and bad forage areas down into the Rio Grande River, where they went whenever there was a bad drought, which occurs about every 50 or 60 years. Right. Horses would take off and go find water. You put the fence up, they stop. Right. In 1892, they we went go. from being real cowboys to, to being livestock raising farmers. Well, that's what White Sands represents in today's time. That occurred in 1994, the die-off on White Sands, and today exactly the same thing is happening throughout the West. doesn't matter which animal or which uh, species you intend to protect. When you do, there's the unintended consequence of saving lives. And that's what happened to Don Hoagland, veterinarian, and Les Gilliland on White Sands Missile Range. Les was an old-school rancher with old-school ways, the ultimate conservationist. Right. If they didn't protect their land, their, their grass was destroyed, and they couldn't use it the next year. They were ultimate environmentalists, ultimate conservationists as ranchers. Then there was Hoagland, modern-day science cowboy, puts a, puts a gray felt hat on his head and comes into town and starts stealing everybody's horses. It didn't go well. It was a difficult life with Les during that period. He was, and they will tell you today, if you interviewed him today, which I recommend you do, you interview Les today, he's old school cowboy, a fabulous calf roper, lived in North Carolina for a little bit when he was so upset about what had gone on at White Sands Missile Range in the the 60s and 70s, and then went back to take care of what was his by birthright. Those horses and that land. Les and I didn't get along, but today I'm, I'm here to tell you that we're fabulous friends. Maybe I think more of that than he did. So it got a little Western. It got really Western. The trouble with that guy was, though, he could pick up a 16-pound sledgehammer and do anything he wanted with it. And I usually had to drag it to get it somewhere. But Les saw me as a horse thief, and he will tell you he saw me as a horse thief. And his goal was to protect what was his by birthright taken from his father, supposed to have been given back. General MacArthur guaranteed they'd get their land back at the end of World War II. As history would have it, didn't happen. Which, led, which is what is the general premise of what is now developing into a feature film about Nobody's Horses. Is the, the book is about the horse rescue itself and the technical aspects of the rescue and the excitement going on in the, the largest modern horse capture in, in our recent times. The feature film is about those two cowboys and the wildlife biologist, veterinarian, Ruidoso Downs jockey, veterinarian involved in the middle of that whole mix. Hoagland came in as an outsider, and he wasn't welcome, but he was ordered by the military to do it, hired to do it, and finished the job. uh, Today, if I went back to White Sands Missile Range, I have a few more friends than I did the day that I left, and that is because the book points out what a good bunch of people from Ruidoso to Las Cruces, New Mexico, from El Paso to Albuquerque, as some of the finest cowboys, finest people you'll find anywhere. You bet. New Mexico is full of, of great ranches, great cowboys, great cowgirls, and a lot of respect for their land and the animals and the environment there. 
Yeah, and speaking speaking of the great cowgirls that are out there, uh, Dr. Becky Washburn at the time, she's Dr. Becky Washburn Brown, I believe now. She's a barrel racer and a heck of a roper. Uh, you had gone out and, and hired her to help you uh, do the things that needed to be do, uh, done, uh, which was obviously, uh, first of all, uh, de-manhooding the guys and uh, doing the geldings. And what was the general work day like? We're, and talk- we're talking about horses here. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> but what was the general? Uh, I do cringe <laughs> every time. What was the what was the work day like? What time would you start? And uh, talk about how much. And, and as a matter of fact, uh, your book mentions that uh, Doctor Becky got uh, hurt pretty bad one day, hand caught and and ripped the skin back over and stuff. And she wrapped it up, and went right back to work. Uh, talk a little bit about her and her help, and and exactly what you were doing with the horses to get them ready for shipment. Uh, down to Oklahoma for the uh, for not the sales but the adoptions. Right, so, great questions. Doctor Walter became involved specifically at the request of Les Gilliland, the rancher, mm-hmm. my nemesis in this story in real life, and then during our time at White Sands Missile Range, uh, because I wanted to keep different kind of veterinary people coming in and working on this project. One for their experience. And two, because I was a hired contractor on a no-bid federal contract because of emergency, that I needed outside people to come in and evaluate the health, outside veterinarians to come in and evaluate the health of the horses before they left the missile range. So the military was a deep taxpayer dollar pockets. No, no one would suggest that horses left the White Sands missile range of ill effects from anything they made come across while on White Sands Missile Range. And Becky was one of those several veterinarians that assisted me. She came in. I met her at, uh, in, I think, uh, Tularosa, New Mexico, perhaps even in Three Rivers at a very small little restaurant at 5 o'clock in the morning, which was the start of our day. We were ready to enter the uh, eastern gate of the Missile Range at 5 o'clock in the morning because, one, it's in the desert, and, yes, it does get warm even in the winter, but we have to remember we are capturing in the wintertime. So it was a little bit cooler than it might have been in the middle of July oh, or in the middle of another drought. And the drought had eased a bit. And so uh, a while talking about what was the health of the horses when I went to capture them, well, they had regained a lot of their health because of the mesquite bean that grows uh, the fooding body from the mesquite tree is about as nutritious as alfalfa. And so horses tended to eat as much of that as they could when it was available. And so Becky, uh, who was tremendously talented, because of her then again agriculture background, she come out of agriculture background. She was an All American Futurity jockey. She went to my alma mater at Colorado State University, and she had uh, as a brother in the rodeo circuit as well. She was just quite talented uh, in all around horsemanship skills. And so when Becky came in, it was obvious to see within 30 seconds that uh, she had all the skills necessary. Now it was just to talk about technique. Again, you can't teach a person talent. Talent's what you develop over the course of your life, but you can teach technique. And so I did. I had recommended to Becky that be careful when when you go to insert the pointy end of that syringe, that syringe into that horse's jugular vein. Understand that he, he might drop down on his knees, and if he does that, you can drag your hand with him. And before I even got those words out of my mouth, down it went, and it tore the skin from her wrist down to the second knuckle on her fingers, and it hung like a a four-inch wide flap of skin in, in all directions, and it was me that did the screaming, and not <laughs> Becky. She actually embellished more than it needs to be. 
she wrapped it, put that skin back on her hand, wrapped it with pink colored vet wrap, <laughs> and finished. That happened at six o'clock in the morning, and she finished the entire day. I about passed out around two o'clock in the afternoon. She was still bleeding harder. That's so that those was one New Mexico cowboys. She will always be remembered. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Uh, talk about the, the moving of the horses after all the pens are built. And, and I mean, there's just so many things that I'd like to talk about. But uh, talk about getting the horses down to the adoptions in Oklahoma. And, and at the at the conclusion of the book, you have some, some photos of horses that were adopted, the before pictures, the after pictures, with the adoption families taking care of them, uh, the concerns of getting all those horses down there for the adoptions and, and afterwards. It was no simple process. First thing you had to do was get the stallions away from the, the females. And you could put the females of all ages together, but you had to put the stallion, younger stallions with the younger ones and the older ones with the older ones. And you would see there would be a, a, a patriarch in each group of 30 or 40 uh, uh, adult, older stallions. And one, that patriarch would herd all of the other horses and other stallions into a corner and hold them there while he'd run around the corner and take a look and try to find out where all the females went to right. after we got them captured. Well, uh, after we do blood work, do freeze branding, a, a painless uh, liquid nitrogen freeze brand, as you see used uh, broadly throughout the West today, we would uh, get ready, do all the health certificate issues, uh, deworm, vaccinate, and then get prepared to transport. And they, we couldn't use the low boy kind of transports that used to be used uh, earlier in the Mustang's life, where some horses would be below, uh, way below other horses. There'd be three deckers and right. things like that. We could only use the two decker. And, and you had to be really careful because these horses had a big foot, especially with those that had the draft horse blood in them. And that when they kicked, they would bust a, a full two inch, two by 12 and a half with one kick. And they busted more than 400 slats that we made on the shoots just by kicking them one time. So when you put them in a brand-new aluminum horse trailer, big semi-transport carrying roughly 40 adult stallions at a time. One kick in the foot would go right through the side of that, so it was really important and imperative not to stir the horses up so everything was easy does it. Transporting them to Oklahoma was a 13-hour ride, and you were limited at 24 hours. You had to stop and offload the horses, right. so it was fortunate that we only went 13 hours, and they would go uh, – to Bartlesville, Oklahoma, to a pre-contracted ranch with good blue stem grass. I even brought their blue stem grass into White Sands Missile Range from Bartlesville, Oklahoma, so that we could uh, transfer them onto the hay they were going to eat when they went to the ranches in Oklahoma and probably where their life would be uh, spent over the next 15 or 20 years should they live that long eating blue stem grass. So when we transferred them from White to Sands, they were already on that loose stem grass. When they got to the ranch, they spent as much as six months making sure. I, I made sure that their health was uh, in order before they were adopted. But I did have about 300 babies born on the ranch in Oklahoma. Oh. And so you have to remember, we might have captured nearly 2,000 at White Sands, but I had 300 babies to deal with. And uh, fortunately, the mayor stayed with them, whereas in the cat. In Oklahoma, the mayor stayed with the babies, but during the captures, many times babies went right and mama went left. And, and so you, I spent you have a no lot way of time being which... a nursemaid. <laughs> wow. There was no way to know. Well, you, there was a way to know. When you put everybody together in the back isolation chamber where humans had to stay away so the horses could adjust for three days before they saw a two-footer on the ground, a predator with, with just two feet touching the ground. Right, right. Uh, full three days. Then... You you would find out if there if the mama was back there, but if it wasn't, that baby be up the front gate trying to look for a way out. Oh, trying to find well, mama who didn't come in with the group. 
So how many horses now approximately are there that are still in the wild and how many are in captivity that are waiting for adoption? On White Sands Missile Range, there are eight stallions. There are nothing else on the Missile Range, all two million acres living mostly on the upper 600,000. But let's talk these are the, about these the, are the phantom range. horses that you're talking about, right, that you, you refer to oh, as phantoms. Right. right. I refer to as what? I'm sorry. As phantoms. The five, the eight phantom stallions. Right. They're stallions. Right. I referred. They still live there in the, on White Sands Missile Range, and the Indians revere them. So, but in the western sixteen contiguous states, we have about thirty-seven thousand horses still in the wild. The Department of the Interior has captured thirty-four thousand head, and they are in containment either on pastures in Oklahoma, in Kansas, uh, in holding tanks in Palomino Valley, Nevada in Rock Springs, Wyoming, in Canyon City, Colorado, in Kearney, Nebraska, and other such places. There are 34,000 head waiting disposition. What, what does that mean? It means that our captures got out of whack with our adoption potential. When the economy starts to turn down, people don't want to wow. adopt the free-roaming horse. And so all of a sudden, adoptions slacked off. The captures did not slow, and that's how we ended up with 34,000 more than we can adopt. That leads us directly into what is we face today is the unwanted horse dilemma. Now, with the unwanted horse, and you say you've got 34 in captivity, and it's tough to get them out. I mean, what's the program now? Or I mean, is it just turn them back out to the wilds with the other 37,000, or, or, or what do we do now? Because the taxpayers right now are having to pay for that, right? Right. As briefly as possible, at the turn of the century, 19th century, we uh, 1900s, we had roughly 2 million free-rolling horses. By 1969, we had 20,000 head left due to various um, disposal means, either by ranchers or by federal and state governments. And along came Wild Horse Annie and created the second largest letter-writing campaign ever, second only to the Vietnam War. The Wild Horse Advocacy created a thing called the, um, the Wild Free-Rolling Horses and Burrow Act of 1971. So in 1971, the numbers of horses were started to grow. And over from 1971 until 19, 2005, let's suggest, we, we've harvested 200,000 horses. We've harvested 34,000 more than we can handle. Right. Once you capture one of those horses, according to that law, you can't turn them back into the wild. That's oh. why they haven't been turned back. Now, even when such kind people as... Um, Madeline Pickens suggested that they would buy a ranch somewhere in Nevada and, and uh, put the horses on it and then came back later and asked for a $500 a year stipend per horse, which is roughly the $1.27 per right. day that it costs to feed them today. You have to remember that that's public money, and hence it has to be under federal bid, right. and it has to be bid out. And if you put all 34,000 head in one place, who, who would win that bid? Who could control those horses? And that's why it became a problem as to what to do with them, and that's why the, the Madeline Pickens initiative has not been successful today, and that it's because of the competitive bid constraints. Now, what are you? what is the issue? You can't turn them back wild. And so it's almost like our immigration issue of today. Do you stop the floodgate and then deal with what you've captured, or do you? what other kind of things should you do? And so I've made recommendations across the United States that, one, we look at this animal as what it really is. We don't have any wild horses. We Technically, if you, we domesticated the horse 3,500 to 4,000 years ago, 
Once domesticated, they no longer return to the wild state. But if feral or gone loose offends you, or if Mustang, which means ownerless, right. somebody owns them, either the public or the or private ownership owns them. If if you have trouble with all those different words and what do you call them, Spanish Mustangs or Mustenio or whatever, if you call them free roaming, you stop all the argument because they are, in fact, free roaming. But remember, we have two pools of horses in the United States, which leads us to the discussion of the unwanted horse dilemma. Two pools of horses. One is the domestic herd, which is privately owned. Now, don't confuse domestic with domesticated. They're all domesticated. All, right. the are, all of our horses are domesticated. The domestic pool is privately owned. It falls under the purview of private property law. Those horses are our private ownership, and hence there are no laws that called animal rights laws that protect any of our animals, or any, including our horses. Understand, we don't have any animal rights laws. We have animal welfare right. laws. The second pool of horses are the free-roaming pool. But remember, we have several pools, subsets, in the free-roaming pool. We have those that fall under the purview of the 1971 Act that protects horses. We have those on Indian, Native American tribal lands, which are sovereign horses owned by the tribes. We have military horses, which are not public. They're military horses if they're free-roaming on, say, Nellis Air Force Base. They're not public horses. We have those on state parks on federal parks that don't, are not covered by the Wild Horse Act. So we have to know what group of horses are you talking about. But something happened in 2005. In 2005, Conrad Burns, Senator then in, from Montana, slipped a rider into the omnibus spending bill for fiscal year 2005 that removed the protections of the captured free-roaming horses, the captured Mustangs, to, under the Department of the Interior purview, BLM is, is the one uh, that has to, Bureau of Land Management, Bureau has Land to Management. officiate. Yeah. Yeah, Bureau of Land Management and the state agriculture park, the, the national federal agriculture parks, have to uh, deal with those 34,000 hit. Once you remove the commercial protections and a horse didn't adopt after three tries, they could go to commercial slaughter. Well, that, again, brought out the animal, the, the wild horse advocacy groups, which are very powerful, and they right. shut down the three slaughter plants that we had in the United States. Now, whether you're a slaughter advocate or a no-slaughter advocate, horses can still get on transport and go to Mexico. They can still get on transport and go to Canada. But the point is this. Do you, once a horse is captured and he comes into uh, containment under the BLM purview and they can't turn them back to the wild, technically they become private property owned by the BLM. Once they're adopted, they're definitely private property, just as is the horse in your backyard. If you want to change private property law, you're going to meet an awful lot of lawyers along the way. That changes whether you own a goldfish or a lawnmower or your own property. <laughs> For sure. That's private property law. For sure. So the point is this. What the unwanted horse dilemma of the day came about as a result of two things. The biggie was the change in the Wild Horse Act. And until you fix the Wild Horse Act, and re-protect those horses that can go to commercial slaughter, the advocacies are not going to back away from the no-slaughter provision. That, what did they do? They stopped USDA veterinarians from inspecting meat slaughter. Okay, they, they just virtually shut it down. Now they're going to stop transport to Mexico and Canada. Whether that should be done or not is up to other people and not right. for me. What I'm concerned about is... What are you going to do with those that are still in the wild? Are you going to add them to the 34,000 head you already captured, which is ongoing right now, or should you manage them in the wild? 
Now, originally, I've been involved in up to 22,000 head of horses coming off the wild, and they are, and they behave wildly, that's for sure, and being trained by prisoners or going directly on to adoption. So I've been on that side of the discussion intensely as a veterinarian and as a horse trainer. And I also have been on the side of management in the wild using contraception and other means. Here's what I suggest we do. First of all, we start using contraception in the western states where we have free-roaming horses. Now there are only 10 western states with free-roaming horses. We copy what's being done on the outer banks of Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina, and we use contraception. We use very good Texas A&M genetic scientist Gus Cothran, Dr. Gus Cothran, to, to help officiate how in the western states we handle the use of contraception. We redistribute to lands covered by the Wild Horse Act. If you have too many horses in one herd management area, you move them. You get the state universities involved in the states that have free-roaming horses, and you pay graduate students to study them, and you fund them to study them. And, yes, all that takes money, but you're also paying $1.27 per head per day to feed them once you catch them, and you're stuck with them right. once you catch right. them. Right, we're, we're doing that now. Them. Yeah. Well, Dr. Don, yeah, what we're doing right now, the long and the short of the discussion is this. You, uh, develop ecotourism. I want my grandchildren to be able to see a free-roaming horse. I, we don't need a million, but we don't need zero. Zero would be a bad number. So let's have a few. Let's get them down to about 26,000 head in those 10 states. Let's hold them at 26,000. Don't accept 25,000 on one side, and don't demand that there be 27,000. So the principle behind it is, is manage them in the wild. We have manage everything else. Why not manage the free-roaming horse? Absolutely. That's my suggestion. Again, the book is Nobody's Horses, The Dramatic Rescue of the Wild Herd of the White Sands, written by Dr. Don Hoagland, DVM, uh, North Carolina, New Mexico, wherever he plants his feet, and, and just a great guy. And uh, he has the horse in his heart and uh, the unwanted horse that he wants to be wanted. Uh, Dr. Don, on behalf of Jimmy K. and myself, thanks for joining us today and, and look forward to talking to you again uh, about some more options for the unwanted horse. Well, we're back with Helena and Glenn here on the Stable Scoop Show. We thank Jimmy Kay and Alan for letting us borrow that interview. The second part of that series will be coming up next week. We'll have for you. And Helena, you know, I'm glad that we were able to bring this to our audience as well because we've had so much of a request for us to cover this topic. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm speechless, really. And for the first time, I mean, you know, that doesn't happen very often, <laughs> but I'm, I'm suspicious because they did it well. They did it very, very well. Well, and I, and I, I like how they, they guided us time. from the beginning through, and I complimented them that, and I really, I called Jimmy Kay and Alan, and I told them that, look, I am very impressed with how you guys handled yeah. this. You know, starting yeah. at the beginning and really walking us through, and we're about halfway through the story now, and we'll finish that up next week. So you don't want to miss next week's episode, which is the conclusion of their interview. I just, it's just very well done. It's very clear. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, and you know what? There are a lot of major news media outlets that um, I don't think cover a story or cover a topic as well balanced as clearly um, as as uh, these guys have done. I was really impressed. Well, good. Well, and of course, you can find links to everything that we covered today on our show on our show notes at StableScoop.com. And also, you can provide us feedback. You can just go to our website and click on the contact link at the top of the page there. We love getting emails. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Horse Radio and Helena at... 
Helena underscore B-E-E. And we want to thank our sponsors. We want to thank Omega Alpha for joining the parade and also for Equestrian Collections for being part of the parade since the very beginning. And uh, speaking of parades, I got to just talk about one thing here. Did you see that story about the horses that got loose in that parade? I think it was in Iowa, wasn't it? I I saw your Facebook post on it, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was, uh, I guess the horses, uh, something happened. They were pulling a wagon and something happened and the one harness, or the one bridle came off. One horse was rubbing on another. I don't know exactly what happened. But the bridle came off, the horses spooked, and they bolted. And ended up uh, killing one person, running through the crowd. They killed one person and 23 ended up in the hospital. Um, it was bad. That's a lot. I know yeah. it was bad. And, you know, it, it just was one of those fluke things. I just hope it doesn't cause an overreaction that, you know, horses can't be in parades anymore, you know, kind of thing. Uh, I don't even want to talk about it because it's nothing good can come out of the exposure with that. Like I know. horse people understand, you know what, this stuff happens. Unfortunately, I mean, somebody got killed and a lot of people got hurt. Um, it's, it's rare that these things happen. I mean, if you look at the statistics. Yeah, look at the number know, of parades in a year and, you know, how many horses Just look at the in. number of, of deaths from drunk driving and, right. you know, stuff like that. But, you know, what happens is the news gets hold of a story like this, and then it's just like sharks. They get a hold of a story like this, and suddenly, you know, horses are dangerous, and, you know, swimming in the ocean is dangerous. It's like, Everything is dangerous. Everything is inherently dangerous. I'm sitting um, on a ball right now. I could fall off and hit dangerous. my head. <laughs> I almost did fall off. You should wear a helmet. <laughs> I just should be wearing my helmet when I'm sitting on my ball. <laughs> be sure to visit all the other great shows on the network at horseradionetwork.com. We have a lot of them now. And don't forget, Tack and Habit is uh, the other show that Helene and I do. Talk <laughs> you about. almost forgot. I almost forgot I was going, okay, which one is it? Um, so Tack and Habit, uh, tackandhabit.com. We have some great items. We were talking about this week, and it was a lot of fun. We had a good time. So let's hop on over to tackandhabit.com and listen to Helene and I's other, uh, other foray into the radio world. And I think you're going to enjoy that. It's pretty light and fluffy. We don't do a whole lot of serious on Tack and Habit. Of course, we don't. This is probably the most serious episode we've had in Stable Scoop in a long time. We get, we get a little serious on Stable Scoop yeah, every now and yeah. then. And we have some great shows coming up, too, so stay tuned. We'll be back next week. With more cool stuff. No, that's Tack and Habit. That's Tack and Habit. See, you did mess that up. See, I got talking about Tack and Habit. We wanna, well, okay, we'll redo that one. So we'll, we'll be, be back, back next, next week. week. What do I usually say? With the scoop? With the scoop. That's kind of lame. It is. I'll have to come up with a new, that, you know. Oh, you know what? Up. It's the second part of the scoop because we're, we're doing the second part of the unwanted horse. All right. Let's start again. Set okay. me up again. All right. And we'll be back next week with part two of the scoop. Yeah, that was pretty good. That was good. It only took yeah. it three times, but it was pretty good. <laughs> we're lucky it only took me three times. You got to hear me record the commercials. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.